I'm Bev, and I'm a compulsive overeater. It's not on? You mean you guys couldn't hear me? <laughs> wow. Am I on now? Yeah. I'm still Bev. I'm still a compulsive overeater. Tonight, can we start with the serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Okay, um, we have some flyers up here for a sponsor's workshop that we're having in Dayton on November 11th. And I'm going to start them around, and if you would please take one, and if you're not from the Dayton area, um, take it back to where you're from. We'd love to have you. We have a couple other flyers up here. Then we just have one copy of each on um, some other activities in Columbus, Akron, etc. Um, I don't think I have anything more to say in any announcements. So without further ado, let me introduce Lucille. Hi, my name is Lucille, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi. Hi. Um, I have a, a new direction or a different direction to go in. I originally told you that I'd come back and talk about the steps four through nine, and I will do that. But before I do that, I want to start with um, another part, another solution, I guess is what it is. And that's what's, what you'll see on the board behind me. The, this afternoon, we addressed a little bit about the food plan or indirectly, how do you get on a food plan? What is the food plan? OA doesn't endorse food plans. How do you be spiritual and be eating? Do you have fat serenity? Do you lose the weight? And so forth and so on. And, and I understand that that's a big issue in everybody's mind. Um, I've had an a, opportunity to talk to some of you in the break time. And, and then I went back to my room and I said a little prayer and I, I asked God to help me with this. And I've decided to face the controversial question of the food plans. <laughs> and I've decided to take a risk and talk about food for a brief period of time. It won't be the whole time, but I am going to touch on it. And I'm going to share with you the food plan that I eat on. I'm going to share with you the food plans that I've eaten on. I'm going to share with you the foods that I've tried to eat, the foods that I have not had great success with, um, the denials that I've gone through, um, the struggles and the ups and downs, the things that have been a part of my life for this 10-year journey. Okay, the, um, the paper says that I've been in the program 12 years and I maintain over 100-pound weight loss. And that's true, but that is not without struggle, and that is not without, I hate to use the word failure, but it's not without failure. It is not without weight gain. It is not without insanity. Um, so those are all very, part, very present in my life and a part of my life. So we're going to start off with that. What you see behind me is a copy of the food plan I eat on. I have nicknamed this food plan the 2222 food plan. Very simple. People ask, do you eat on a diet? Do you follow a plan? This is something that I have come up with through the years. This is a copy of the old gray sheet. For those of you who don't remember what that was, the old gray sheet, and this is what I was drummed into my mind. I was brainwashed, and I thank God that I had this training, was one protein and one fruit. I ate that every day for a year and a half. Never deviated. For lunch, I ate one protein and one vegetable and one finger salad. A finger salad is like an olive and a carrot stick. You know, you could die on this food plan. I don't recommend it. Your hair falls out and your hands turn green. If you're on that food plan and it's working for you, stay on it. Please remember, these are just my experiences, you know. 
What works for you, works for you. That's what that is. And for dinner, I ate a protein, usually the largest half a chicken I could find. <laughs> salad, two cups of salad, the most salad I could jam into a two-cup salad bowl, usually about this much salad. And a vegetable, which was usually one large can of string beans. Maybe one teaspoon of dressing someplace in here. I ate on this for one year and a half, and I lost over 100 pounds. I also lost my hair, and I lost my menstrual cycle. Some of my hair started to pull out, and my hands were always orange. But I got thin, okay? And that's all I wanted. I wanted to be thin. I was not nutritionally sound. I was not sane. My body was not in normal functioning, you know, system. It was a mess, but I got thin. Okay, so I did that. So when you look over here to the 2-2-2 diet, this is not so different than this. The only difference is, is I've added things that I need to live. I eat two dairies and two breads and two oils. So my basic food plan today consists of two proteins, two fruits, two vegetables. Usually this is one cold salad and one hot vegetable. Two breads. I consider a bread something like wasa, rice cake, rye bread, wheat bread, something whole wheat, natural, not, you know, white pizza dough or um, croissants and that stuff. That doesn't work for me. Um, dairies, cottage cheese, eggs, milk, skin milk, and I use some type of salad dressing. I prefer oil and vinegar, but there are other things on the market. And I drink lots of water. I try, I don't do nicotine, caffeine, um, because it doesn't work for me. It makes me too hyper. And I try to stay off a lot of other just kind of sorbitol things because sorbitol makes this body of mine very sick. I don't think my system could, didn't, um, can process that. Okay, so here really how it works out. And then I've broken it down. I eat four times a day. I eat breakfast at about 7 or 7.30. I eat lunch at about 12 or 12.30. 3.30 I eat a fruit. Sometimes I bring this bread down here if I need to or if I didn't feel like eating it then. And at dinner, I usually eat about 6 o'clock. I could be persuaded to eat at 7. And if it's a big to-do and they're having dinner at 8, if I'm told ahead of time, I could make it. I don't like to eat after 8 o'clock ever. It's just too late for me. I'm too hungry. And by the time we get there, I got a notch on everything that's not good for me, and I'm starving. So I, I try to eat on time. Key in my life, I eat on a schedule. I eat on time. I try to. You know, I, I work like the rest of you, and sometimes I don't get to lunch until 1. I don't die. I just, I just do it. Um, okay, the, the, the thing I talked about was real flexibility. This is just a guideline. If I show up here and all they have is eggs, then I eat the protein up here. If I go to lunch and they don't have a protein, then I move it down here. Like, I don't make myself insane. I know that these things are pretty much allotted in the day. Okay, some days I don't have all these dairies. Some days I cut this out and I just have this. Yesterday I had a fly, Friday, Thursday I flew here, Friday I flew here. There was not a string bean to be seen, or a salad, okay? Forget it, forget it for vegetables. So I ate probably three or four fruits that day. I didn't make myself crazy. You know, the choice upstairs was macaroni and cheese or two apples. And I decided to have two apples and cottage cheese and not eat macaroni and cheese because it's not what I want. Macaroni and cheese and peas, to be honest. You know, I thought to myself, what do I want to do with this? I could make myself nuts and cry and have a frenzy, or I could set myself and go on a relapse, or I could just turn this over to my higher power and say, you know what, I'll eat a protein and a fruit. But it's taken me years to get to this. I mean, I couldn't do this in my first year of sobriety and abstinence. My first year, if they didn't have a half a chicken, a salad, and a string beans, I couldn't make it. I could, I mean, I was just thrown in a tither. And even now, today, I don't do well at a buffet. 
I mean, I do okay. I go there and I just kind of rest and I try to look and see what's everything's there. I gotta make sure I see everything. And then I could pick out the three things or the four things that I'm gonna eat. I don't like to put myself into that. Like if I go to an all you can eat place, I ask the man for the menu. You know, I'll order from the menu. I'll take one dinner and everybody at the table can eat all they want. Because um, usually they don't want a lot. They just, they just eat that. So, but anyway, so this mix and match is pretty easy. All right, so this is the kind of thing that I have found helpful for myself. I have experimented with other food plans. Um, when OA had out the dignity of choice, there were seven food plans. I've eaten on all of them. There was a, a, a big time when nuts and vegetables and raisins were, you know, like the, all that um, trail mix and all that was a real big thing. So I thought I could be a vegetarian. Um, and one day I was having lunch with my grandmother and I had a bowl of salad like this and a little lettuce and I had about two cups of sunflower seeds on the salad. <laughs> And my grandmother said to me, oh, you must like those seeds, huh? And I went home and I had to look at that. And I had to say to myself, you know, vegetarians probably eat two tablespoons of sunflowers a day. They don't eat a cup and a half. You know, and I'm at a salad bar. I mean, people spring a little on top, and here I am with this thing. Hey, people, you know. I mean, you know, it's, it's like that. It really, that's abnormal. That's not sane behavior. You know, they put that out there and they expect that to last the whole entire day. They, they want to serve 400 people with this, bowl of se with this bowl of nuts. And I show up and, you know, that's like, what happened here? You know, and those are the kind of things that you're going to have to experiment with. Some of you have already been through all your experiments and you're, you're safe on a food plan. You're very comfortable with it. And, and some of you are in between. Some of you are, are probably on a rigid food plan. You've never experimented. You wonder what it's like when you get to maintenance. Well, this is what it's like. It's like trial and error. I suggest that you work with somebody. I don't experiment on my own. I call my sponsor and I say, this weekend we're going away, and we're going to this Mexican restaurant and I want to try to have nachos. Okay, all right, so I'm gonna have one nacho meal. Nachos don't work for me either because I had nachos once. The next day I went out, we were at the office and somebody said, why don't we have for lunch, where should we go? I said, let's go to Mexican and have nachos. <laughs> You know, and the next day I want to have nachos, and the next day I want to have nachos, and the next day I want to have nachos, and I decided that I probably have nachos once a year, if I have nachos once a year, because for some reason it sets me up. If I bring nachos back into the, into the house, I can't sleep, I don't think. I think it still bothers me. Now, I could, I could leave four pounds of chicken in my refrigerator, and after dinner I don't ever think about it, you know? There's a, there's, you know, there's a string beans rot in my refrigerator. No, it doesn't wake me up. Does, I don't, I, it doesn't wake me out of a sound sleep. But bring pizza. Let's go out for dinner. Okay, I'm going to have pizza. Okay, you have two slices of pizza and a salad. Okay, that sounds reasonable. Other people do that. I'm going to try that. We go out there. I'm with a friend of mine. Well, why don't we get a bottle of slice? No, it's cheaper if we get a, a whole thing and we'll just have a piece each. Okay, okay, all right, so we do that. I have a little, she has a little. This person is not in a way, in AA, has no food problem. She doesn't even eat her two pieces. I decide I'll take it home. Okay, now, uh, this is okay, right? I talked to my sponsor, I got a plan. You know, it's within this. Okay, it's going to be considered a bread, and it's going to be a, a protein and a gravy, and I've done all this rationalizing in my mind. And other people in OA do it. You know, that's my thing. Hey, other people eat this. I bring that pizza home. I can't rest a minute. <laughs> Not one minute. I'm walking. I'm thinking, I'm going to bring it for lunch. I'm going to have it tomorrow. <laughs> you know, I say to my spouse, could you go downstairs and throw the pizza away? No, I'll eat it tomorrow. 
no, take it, throw it away now. You know, there are certain things in my house, and, and, I, and I, I actually do this. I say to my spouse, you know those nuts downstairs? They have to live at the office for a while. There are a lot of days where I can have stuff in my house that doesn't bother me. It's true, you know, like, you know, rice cakes or right, whatever else it is that this other civilian person wants to eat. You know, it's around and it doesn't bother me. But there are days when anything bothers me, and then I don't want it near me. You know, I say to myself, no, you should, this should live someplace else for a little while because it's dangerous here. You know, we, 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 had, we had company for Thanksgiving. We just had this huge, big feast, and on the table was the, the left, a bag of nuts and a bag of raisins. And I said, could you hide these? And uh, my friend said, you weren't going to eat these now. We just ate. <laughs> it's like, well, what kind of reasoning is that? So what? You know, that never stopped me before. I, we just ate. I could eat again, and I could eat again and again. It's like certain things at certain times need to be put away. And so what I, what I really need to say to you is that whatever food plan you're on now, you need to have one. You need to have something. You know, you can't just, I can't just wing it. I got to have a guidelines. Then you experiment. That's why these steps are so important, because the steps teach you honesty. I have to be honest. I don't do well with seeds. Oh, there's nothing really wrong with seeds. You're really right, but I don't do well with them. So I have to say, no, they don't go on my food plan today. You know, pizza, okay, there's probably nothing wrong with pizza. There's probably a lot of nutritional value in pizza. Does pizza add to my sanity and help me have a, like a nice, calm, easy day? No. No. Just the thought of going to the pizzeria causes my heart to start to go like this. Okay, I'm already salivating. We're not even there. So I say to myself, is, is it really, is it worth it? Is this really worth it? Is this freedom from obsession? Is this, you know, happy, joyous, and free? I'm supposed to be going out and having a good time with people when we go out. And I can't have a good time because I didn't get the biggest slice out of the pie. You know, I'm terribly unhappy because your piece was bigger than mine. And I think to myself, you've been in the program 12 years. I'm embarrassed to say this. That's why this was a big risk. I said, listen, you just go down there and be honest and tell the people what it's like. That's what it's like after 12 years. Every day is not like that, but there are days when it's like that for me. Um, and I have a sense of humor about this. I accept this disease. I laugh about it. It's very serious. This is a very serious disease. That's why I laugh a lot. It was very painful being severely obese. It was very painful being skinny and active. It doesn't matter what size you are. The insanity of the obsession is just very painful. You know, I could be on vacation, say I'm on vacation with two other couples and there's six of us, and if I'm active in my disease, I spend half the vacation saying, I'll meet you at the corner. Oh yeah, I gotta stop in here and buy cards for my grandmother. My grandmother never gets a card when I'm actively eating. You know, I gotta run into the sweet shop, get what I want, shove it down my throat, run to the next place to meet them as if I were like doing a little shopping or something. You know, all that lying that goes with it, all that, that you know, that de deception. It's like living with a cocaine addict, you know, when you're actively eating and you're trying to hide that from people. It, it really is like having a little monkey on your back. Um, I live with someone and we eat every day at six o'clock, except if I binge or except if I act out. Then at six o'clock, I'm not hungry. You know, and now you have, then you're living with another person who knows you're supposed to be on this plan. So your husband says to you, are we eating? And you say, no, I'm not hungry. Well, that's very strange. So then you have to lie. Well, no, we had a late lunch. Well, we didn't have a late lunch. I ate all day, but I don't want to say that. So then you lie about this and you lie about this and the other person knows you're already lying and then you feel bad because you're lying and then you feel shameful and then, and then and boom. And before you know it, you're back into all that 
hatred, fear, remorse, depression. You know, we're all back where we started from. So it's real important for me to just try to like, be honest. You know, I tell it like it is. I probably was in the program three or four years when I learned how to raise my hand and say, I overate yesterday. And it was a real big ego deflation because like we like to dance around it. Well, I'm having a little trouble. Well, things aren't great. Just say it. I overate yesterday. You know, and that overeat could be anything from, you know, two pounds of sweets to too much lunch or two cups of salad when I really could only eat one. But it doesn't matter what the quantity of food is or what the substance is that you're putting in your mouth. It, the thing is that you put in that mouth and you're abusing yourself and you feel bad about it. And if you don't share how, how you feel about that and get over it, you can't go on. You know, that's why people gain 10 pounds and stay home because they're embarrassed to come back to the rooms and raise their hand and say, I'm really in serious trouble and I need somebody here to help me. You know, I need somebody to care about me, somebody that's going to call me tomorrow at 3 o'clock and say, how are you doing? You know, once you're in a relapse, it's really tough to get out. I'm going to address that. Someone asked me a question later about how do you avoid a relapse and how, what happens when you get in one? Because it happens. Relapse is a part of the disease. I say that very cautiously. It doesn't give anybody permission to set themselves up for a relapse. I never get up in the morning and say, well, relapse is a part of my disease. I think I'll have one today. <laughs> you know, I don't ever want to have a relapse. I really don't. You know, I, I'm moving along fine, but there are days when I make a bad food choice and I say to myself, this does not have to be a full-blown relapse. My life goes like this. It doesn't go boom, crash. You know, I don't need to go to the depths. You know, you go someplace and they don't have anything but breaded fish. Well, you don't eat bread. Well, okay, so you eat the breaded fish. Doesn't mean you got to eat Twinkies tomorrow. See, that's what always happened to me. Oh, well, you know, they had the wrong vegetables here. I had to eat corn instead of string beans, so tomorrow I got to eat sugar. You know, what, where is the sense to that? But that's, that's what we think. We set ourselves up, you know. Instead of me just living in the day, this is the day, this is the meal I chose, or this is the meal that was provided, and I ate it. And at the end, I just, you know, I, I do my inventory. I ask myself, how'd you feel about your food today? I felt okay with it. No, I felt lousy about it. The next day, I call my sponsor, the person I'm in touch with, and I say, you know, I don't feel good about my food yesterday. Today, I really am going to, like, tighten it up. I don't make drastic changes. It pretty much stays like this. But tomorrow the bread is going to be two wasa crackers. It's not going to be six rice cakes. Or tomorrow the bread isn't going to be pizza. You know, it's going to be very straight, very clean. I eat a lot of broiled fish. I eat a lot of broiled chicken. You know, people ask me, do I weigh and measure all my food? I really don't. I'm not like locked in that kitchen, slaving over the stove with those measuring cups. But, like, life has gotten a lot simpler for me. For lunch, I eat an apple, two eggs, and two wasses. It takes me three minutes to put my lunch together. You know, I walk to the refrigerator, one apple, two crackers, two eggs. And that's a weighed and measured lunch. I didn't weigh and measure it. It's already portioned. You know, it's, it's not a hassle to be abstinent if you want to be abstinent. You don't want to be abstinent. It's very hard, you know. Um, and then I, I found that out for myself. You know, people say to me, don't you get tired? You eat the same old thing? There are people in my office that eat McDonald's every day for lunch. Every day, they eat a Whopper and a chocolate milkshake and french fries. They've eaten that every day since I've known them. There are people who stop at the coffee shop and they have the same coffee and the same sweet roll every day for years. Now, nobody says to them, isn't that boring? That's terrible. You eat that every day? You know? But bring tuna fish and lettuce every day for lunch. And everybody in the office or the place where you work knows your business. Are you still eating that? 
You know, and so I had to just like let that go. And so I joked back. I said, are you still eating that ham on rye? You know, that's their business. And I, I, but this, this works for me. This is the plan that works for me. When I go on vacation, I gain weight. And you know why? Because I decide I need nachos. Now, I don't never need to eat nachos because nachos is all this grease and fried, and I don't really do well with that. But occasionally I tell myself, you know, I'm on maintenance and I'm entitled and it'll be all right. And there are other people. I'm not lying. But you know what? It doesn't work good in my body. I could eat certain kind of spicy foods. It's on the food plan. But you know what? It upsets me. So I don't eat it. Um, I kind of know. Peanut butter is another favorite food of mine. I don't eat peanut butter because it kills me. So each one of you, that's why this disease is really... I really think it's a very difficult disease because you have to be responsible for yourself. I don't drink a day at a time, and in nine years, I've only had a thought of drinking twice, okay? I think about food more than two times a minute some days. You know, and I'm responsible for my food. I have to go to the store and buy it. I have to pay for it. I have to lug it home. I have to cook it. I have to clean it. I have to clean up after it. I have to put it away. You know, we have to be with that substance. So I had to learn to make friends with this item. It's in our life, let's face it. You know, they don't have cardboard pills yet. I, you know, if I take three pills a day. Or the OptiFast. You can't drink forever. You know, we have to make peace with food, let God into our lives, let other people into our lives, realize that this is the way life is. We're going to go on vacations. We're going to go to weddings. We're going to fly in airplanes. We're going to, you know, show up at parties and people are going to forget that we're on a food plan and we have to survive. You know, each one of us makes that choice every day. The easiest way is to isolate yourself and stay home and never go out like I did for a year and a half, but you don't, we can't live like that. You can get, I, I don't see anything wrong with getting started that way. I see no, nothing wrong with setting limitations and being rigid in the beginning or having a severe structure. If you're struggling with your food, and you know, you're in trouble with that, I, I think that's great. Go to six meetings a week, call three people a day, weigh and measure your food until you get yourself back in control. I went to a gray sheet meeting two years ago. When I moved to Connecticut, I was in trouble. And, and people in, in Connecticut were, they're on this, um, there are no food plans and most people are new, they weren't even around when the gray sheet existed and so everybody eats the, what they want three or four times a day. And I tried that and I was gaining weight and I didn't like that. And I, I needed to go back to a meeting and I tell you, I found this little, um, this little gray sheet meeting. And I went there and, um, because I needed to have that reinforcement and I got my act back together and I got back committed to, you're right, I am a food addict, I am compul I'm a compulsive overeater, powerless over food, I gotta have a program. I go to the regular meetings now, but I go with my own food plan. I'm not there looking at what everybody else is eating. What are you eating? What kind of plan are you on? Why don't I do what you do? Now I know what works for me. So you, um, <laughs> if you, um, you need to find what works for you, and you need to be committed to that. The key thing for me, and for all of us, was to find the food plan. It doesn't have to be the one I eat on. It could be any of those, the ones that are publicized. You know, they all have them. If you, if you eat on any one of those food plans, it's fine. The food plan isn't what puts the weight on me. It's the deviation from the food plan, you know? If I eat on a plan, if I eat on the gray sheet or the blue sheet or the lean line or the diet center or the Weight Watchers or the basic four or a vegetarian, whatever, whatever that the structure is, if I eat on that consistently day after day, day after day, day after day, I'm going to get thin or I'm going to lose weight, or I'm going to go to a weight that's comfortable for my body. You know, we don't all have to be a size 8. 
we just have to be in a, bo a, a size body that's comfortable for us, that our, our systems work fine, and we're healthy. That's what it's about for me. It isn't about being schvelt and, you know, wardrobes and stuff. It's about living in a healthy body. And that comes by consistency and living on a plan. So I hope that that is helpful for some of you. Um, it does take effort, takes a lot of effort, a lot of trial and error. You know, work with somebody, um, be, try to be honest about what you're eating, try to be honest about the, um, the dips that you take, you know. Remember that you don't have to stay in them. You have a bad lunch, you don't have to have a bad dinner. You know, you can start again today. You don't have to ruin the whole weekend. You don't have to wait till Monday. Um, so that's, that's what it's about. If you have questions about this, oh, here, we'll talk about this. Boring is better. The reason why I wrote that is because today I choose boring. Boring to me is plain. I could have just about almost anything I want on the menu when I go out, and I want plain broiled chicken. That's not because I have to have that. I'm not on a diet. This isn't horrible. It's really what I choose. I prefer to have it plain. You know, when we go out and they want, I prefer just oil and vinegar, thank you. But those are, that was a long time coming. You know, it's taken me a long time to settle down in my life, to be comfortable with who I am as a person, to be comfortable with my spirituality, to be comfortable with my sexuality, to be comfortable with my, um, my, my, my religion of choice, things like that, to be comfortable in my relationship, be comfortable with my family. It's taken me a long time to be comfortable with my food plan. And, and today, I, you know, I've had to make peace with that. And it comes in time. And, and that, it's not boring. I thought that was boring, you know, being in a committed relationship, and being to a committed food sponsor, and being committed to this. You know, where did all the excitement go? But my life is much more exciting today because there is a discipline in my life. You know, the more discipline, it's like in the step. You know, it's kind of like that the paradox. The more, I, the more I surrender, the more I turn it over, the freer I am. You know, the more I surrender, I got, I'm afraid I'm going to be like a hole in the donut, I'm going to be lost if I turn my will over. Well, the more, I, the more I surrender, the more freedom I have. If I bring my food or I commit my food on vacation, I have a wonderful time because the food is over. Then I got another 10 hours a day to do what I want to do to enjoy my life. You know, if I turn that around and I, I put the emphasis on the food and I have to find the excitement in the food, the day is lost because I'm so obsessed with what I'm doing with the food. You know, it's a mental obsession. And the obsession does decrease. You know, I'm not haunted by the food every day. I've been here all weekend. I haven't had any food thoughts. You know, I'm surrounded by OA people, and we're talking about it. I feel really comfortable. I'm relaxed. You know, somebody's cooking the meals. I don't have to do the dishes or think about it. They just put it out. But even upstairs, you know, you have to make choices. There's a lot of food. There's more food up here than I would put on the table at home. But, you know, it's up to me. Do I take two portions or do I take one? Um, you know, and, and somebody once said it, you know, I, you are as fat as you're dishonest. I, and I, I, I wondered about that, and I don't know how I feel about that, but I know that I need to be honest. You know, I have to be honest with what I'm doing. And I call a spade a spade. I know when I'm honest and when I'm dishonest. And if I see it and I can't not have it, like if I think I gotta have two of those potatoes because they're small, then I just cut the bullshit. It's like, look, you're having two potatoes because you're obsessive and you can't just have one. You're not having two because you didn't have one at lunch or you're not going to have one tomorrow and you don't know what they're going to have on the plane. That's all rationalization and that is all just nonsense. You're having this because you're obsessed and you can't not do it. 
You know, I, I don't even want to ask for help. And I'm honest about that. I'm not willing to say, hmm, I should tell the person behind me I'm having trouble and, you know, maybe I shouldn't have this. No, because I'm going to have it. And if that's the day, if that's the way I feel that day, I just have to be honest about that and have to say, you know, God, I really got my hands back in this food and I want it my way and I know this is very dangerous, you know, and I pray tomorrow maybe this will be lifted. And usually if I can be honest about it, just say it. And so I'm not deceiving myself, I'm not playing games, then it kind of loses its power. You know, it's when I lie about it and when I hide it and when I try to just, like, play games with it I always lose. You know, it's, it's very, the book says, cunning, baffling, and powerful. It's, it's almost like it's a live being in my body. I try to figure out, what is this compulsive overeating? What, what the hell is this? It's like, it's like a real thing. It, it really, like, you know, you get into the ring with it, you lose every time. I have never won, you know. Once the, the, once the thought just starts, I know I need to hurry up and get help. I don't even have to be anywhere near the substance. I just have to have the thought... Implanted on, implanted on my mind. If I see something in the supermarket and it's in my mind, I have to really work at kind of erasing that because I may not get it that day, but you could be sure in four or five days down the road I'm going to be there getting it. You know, and I have to, when, I, when I start with the thinking, that's why I don't, I don't have to always be in the food because I can catch it when the thinking starts. You know, when I start having that stinking thinking, when I start to have... I'm confused about what I'm going to eat. I need to really kind of calm myself down. If I come home and I'm really anxious, it's better if I shower before I eat. Like, well, I better go upstairs because I got to calm myself down. If I have a real emotional day or I'm angry at work or something, I don't need to have my lunch in that kind of frenzy, you know. I don't need to take my breakfast in the car, you know. I don't need to shove my lunch down while I'm on the phone. Now, these things happen sometimes, but I have to tell myself, the phone's ringing, I'm eating dinner. No, the machine will have to get it. You know, I've had to set certain limitations and certain boundaries for myself. When I eat, I respect that time. You know, it's like medicine. We're taking the medicine. I need to sit down three times a day, relax, calm down, refocus myself, realize that God has given me a gift, this food is going to nurture my body, say a little prayer, eat the food like a person. You know, I turn the radio off, I turn the TV off, you know, and I just do this little thing. And when it's over, it's over. Sometimes that's sad. I think, oh, man, this is the last one? But it is, you know, and then, and, and then that's over. Um, I, had a, I had a terrible time. I was a night eater. Yeah. I was a night eater because when I grew up with my family, I, when they started to get on my back about overeating, I never wanted to eat in front of them. So I waited till everybody went to sleep. And then I got up in the middle of the night and ate and ate and ate. Now, they all knew I was the one eating because I was the biggest one in the family, so everybody knew. <laughs> but I, I really was a night eater. And so now sometimes I think it's still going to be a long time from the time I eat till the morning. But I, uh, I got help with that, and I did call people late at night a lot of times. And... And now I'm doing much better with that. It really is not, it's not a problem. I don't get up. And I don't sleep at my family's house anymore. That really helps, too. Um, so, like, when I wake up, I, I don't have to find my way down to the kitchen. So that's, the, uh, that's another one of the solutions for me. Find a food plan that works for you. I know it's hard because you go to meetings and there aren't plans on the table. And everybody you talk to, you know, kind of scurries around that everybody does what they do. And, um, but... You know, there are a lot of plans out there. I suggest something that's nutritionally sound, 
I don't suggest gimmicks. You know, I did all that stuff, the Atkins diet, or you could eat all the protein you want. I used to eat steak three or four times a day. I never lost a pound. Um, there's that other one, high carbohydrate, low protein. You know, I ate brown rice and, and wheat bread and the whole loaves of Italian bread. I never lost an ounce. You know, I ate grapefruit and eggs. Forget it. You know, I mean, it doesn't, it's, it's, not, it's not something that's going to last. The only thing that works for me is, you know, living in the real world. These are the foods that grow on the earth. These are the foods that are provided for us. They're the ones who, they're the ones that provide nutritionally for us. Um, and when I eat the right foods, my obsession stays pretty dormant. When I start to entertain the exciting foods, my addiction wakes right up. And boy, it wakes up and it starts and it's on a roll. And the more I feed it, the more it runs. The more it runs, the more I feed it, and on and on and on and on and on. And, and then we're off to the races. Okay, so that's the, um, <coughs> that's all I got to say about the food plan. And if there are any questions about that later, we can talk all about it. Remember that it is not perfection, it's progress. You're going to have days where you feel better about it and some days where you don't feel as good about it. The key is keep coming back, keep trying, you got to stick with it. That's what I do, I just stick with it. When I have a mistake or I, I overeat, I just, you know, I pick myself up and the next day I try it again. And I've been coming back and, you know, here I am, it's 12 years later. My life is better, my health is better, I don't have high blood pressure. I was a borderline diabetic when I, um, when I came into the program. I've never had to take insulin. I am not a diabetic today. You know, I, I don't have to worry about that. I probably have a good liver and good heart. And um, so, so that's that. So now, does anybody have a question about that? Anybody want to say anything about that now or we can, uh, we'll talk about it later. Okay, we'll talk about it later. Okay, what I was going to talk about is the steps four through nine. Step four. Make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. When I first saw the step, like I told you, I thought it was everybody else's inventory. I listed all the things that people had done to me. My sponsor told me that I should take the paper home, re-look at all the situations, and try to find out what my part in the situation was. It was a very new idea for me. Now, I did this many, many years ago in the, when the very beginning came. I didn't understand a lot about it. But I started to do that, and I learned to look at what my part was. Well, yes, yeah, somebody else might have hurt me, but I had some part in that. I fed into the little battle. I encouraged. I harassed. I withhold my affection. Um, I did things like that. So I began to do that, and I began to see the pattern. I was afraid. I was resentful. I was prideful. I had a big ego. I wanted everybody to look at me. I wanted all the attention. You know, I'm very comical. I was raised as the clown child and the scapegoat. I always wanted the center stage. And when you're like that, you cause a lot of trouble. I always wanted to control everybody else's life. You know, I wanted Christmas to go the way I wanted. First, we're going to open the presents, then we're going to sing, then we're going to do this. Who am I to run Christmas Day? You know, there were other eight other people in my family when I was a child. It wasn't going to go my way. So I, I had to start to look at those situations. I had a lot of resentment towards, um, towards the traditional church. I had a lot of resentment towards my grammar school days. You know, hate those institutions. And I thought, well, you know, I had a part in all that. So I, I learned how to list those things. I began to see what my own emotional 
deformities were. So what the hell is an emotional deformity? Well, that's when you like wallow in that self-pity all day. I could be having a great day. And if I was mad at my mother, I'd be, I'd be happy all day. And then I'd see her, I'd be mopey, mad. And, you know, and it's like, you know, this, you know, that's just not really good behavior. You just, you know, you just kind of feed the fire. It's like I always wanted attention. And it didn't even matter if it was negative attention. I wanted attention. And so I would act out and do things to draw that negative attention. When I did my fourth step, I had to look at that. And I had to say to myself, you know, these are things that are ruining your life. These are the things that keep you in the food. You know, I can't afford that anger and that resentment. The longer I hold that resentment, the more I fuel it. And the more I fuel it, the more I have to eat to suppress that. Because then I have this conflict. I'm supposed to be this happy-go-lucky, spiritual, loving being. And really, I want to rip your head off. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I can't live in conflict like that. I can't we up here and talk a 12-step program and go home and kick my animals, you know. That just doesn't, it's just not right. If I really am at peace and I'm really doing what this step tells me, I'm going to be a decent person. doesn't mean that I'm not angry. I am angry. And I deal with my anger appropriately. You know, I go home and I hit things, you know, I hit the tennis racket on the pillow and I, I just get up my emotions. I go for a walk or I, I write it down on paper. You know, I just scribble it right out, you know. I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And I think, and I feel better when that's over. But I don't call somebody up and say, you pissed me off, you're the one, and if you didn't do this, I wouldn't feel this way, and you, you, you. You know, I did that a lot. I used to swear all the time. By the grace of God, I'm not a swearer. But, you know, I grew up in Jersey City, and having a truck driver's mouth was in. You know, everybody swore. We went to Catholic school. We weren't allowed to swear. So when we came home, boy, we just loved to curse. You know, and cursing didn't go over big in my house. You know, my father wasn't a big cursor. So it was really hard. I had, to like, I had to curse only in certain times in my life. And so I really got into it. It was like, you know, that's the real angry word. You know, when you could swear dirty at people, then you hurt them. And, I, I, and, and in my fourth step, I realized that, you know, these words are not necessary. This is abusive to other people, you know. And, and I needed to, like, curtail that. You know, it's bad enough it's not ladylike, like they used to tell me. But it just, it just isn't right. You know, it, it's wrong. And I realized that I was opposing my own hostility and my anger's on other people. I, I, didn't, I didn't like this um, fourth step. I, I really was kind of afraid of it. I, I thought, oh, I have to do the fourth step? That's, I, I really, because I just like magnified everything. You know, I was either going to be a horrible person when I thought about that. Oh, see, now I'm really just like, you know, the salt of the earth. I'm really no good. I'm rotten. And, that, and that's not really what the step was about either. The step is about taking an honest survey of my life. The good, the pros, and the cons. You know, doesn't doesn't give, doesn't say go home and beat yourself up because you're a rotten nobody. It it gave me the opportunity to look honestly at. I had stole money to buy drugs. Um, I had cheated on my exams. I had copied people's answers. I had paid people to type papers for me and wrote my name on them. You know, I had wrecked people's automobiles under the influence of sugar and booze. I needed to write that down. See, those things don't have so much power over me today. It doesn't hurt me to tell you I stole money. It did 10 years ago when I first got in touch with how, like, oh, God, what a miserable person. I stole $200 because I had to buy marijuana and go out to dinner. I, I stole this money from my uncle. I felt terrible. Today, I accept that that was a part of what happened in my sickness. You know, the fourth step also talks about our sexual relationships. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I think it's really important that we address that. Our sexual lives are very important to us, and for me, it's very connected to my spirituality. My connection with my spiritual life and my sexual life 
go pretty much hand in hand. And if I am not addressing myself as a spiritual being and as a sexual being, I'm real confused. You know, I can't be working this 12-step program and sleeping with everybody in Asbury Park. Um, and I thought that I could do that when I first got there. And that didn't really work for me. You know, it was a long time I had to learn about that. I had to learn how to live in a committed relationship. I had to learn how to be faithful in this relationship. I had to learn how to be faithful to a higher power. I had to learn that I hurt people before my recovery and probably in my recovery, you know, either withholding sex or being flirtatious and then being standoffish or all those kind of games that we play. And we all play them. And I didn't, not me, I didn't do anything. I was too naive. Well, I didn't know. You know, that is nonsense. My sponsor said, don't be telling me you didn't do anything. Well, I don't know. Well, I don't want to know these people are hitting on me. Here I am just, you know, yapping away, running around my little jumpsuit. You know, I asked for a lot of this stuff. No, not me. I had it. That wasn't my fault. Well, you know, it was my fault. And I had to make amends, which we'll get to, to some of those people who I who I was, you know, I acted out with. And uh, thank God that doesn't have to be in my life today. But in the book, clearly it asks you those questions. You know, where in my life did I withhold affection? You know, we do that with our, probably with our kids or with my parents. I mean, I know if I have a bad day, I would talk a lot about my mother and father because I've had to do a lot of healing with that. But there are days where I, I, just, I, I don't want to call my mother. Well, why not? You know, it's like, just call her. I really love her. I adore her. But I withhold my affection because I know she wants that and I'm pissed because she didn't do something that I wanted. You know, and then I need to look at that behavior and I need to say, no, you don't, this isn't really a healthy thing for me. And it, and it, and it doesn't hurt, and maybe it does hurt her, I'm sure it does, but also it hurts me. And that's why I have to not do that. I have to, do, I have to clear my act, you know, in terms of my sexual behavior, and in terms of my affection behavior and all that kind of stuff so that I have a clean slate. The fourth step for me was really, you know, rummaging through the wreckage of the past, getting rid of that stuff. I don't have to carry that around. I don't have to be upset about stealing money when I was in the 10th grade. That is over. I don't steal today. I do, I do a 10th step, but sometimes I do, I do a 4th step sometimes. Like if there's a big situation in my life that I am just nuts about, you know, um, like I, I have a tendency to be jealous and envious sometimes. And uh, I've had to write about that a lot. I really have had to just kind of sit down and write, you know, this, every time we go to the dance and my partner flirts with somebody else, this just makes me crazy. You know, and early on in this relationship, it really bothered me a lot. I wanted to believe that I was grown up to think that we had our own lives and that it was fine and I had trust and I could be trusted and it was okay that I danced with everybody at the party, but you better just act the way I want you to. So I really sat down again with a pencil and a piece of paper and I really wrote this down. What, what bothers me about this? What causes disharmony? What's going on in my life? Why am I, what's happening to me? Well, I'm insecure, I'm jealous, I'm into the self-pity, you know, and it, it wasn't my partner's behavior, it was my behavior, you know, and today we can go on separate vacations, or we can go places different, and we can be with different people, and I don't have that same kind of jealousy. I have a twinge every now and then, you know. Every now and then I kind of saunter over just to make sure what the conversation is that's happening. You know, I have to butt my little head in there every now and then. But for the most part, I'm, I'm okay with that. But, I, and I, I wasn't. And that, that's what this step helps me with. I think that I'm, I live happier today in all my relationships because I can keep the focus on myself. The fourth step is, um, it's an ongoing process. 
I think it's the beginning of really looking at yourself. And for me, I never looked at myself. If I was uncomfortable, I just ate. You know, down went the gun. I don't know about it. You know, I was confused about sexuality. Down went the gun. I was confused about what the church thought about this. Just eat and don't deal about it. You know, um, I had a lot of questions about politics and you know that that stuff and the injustices in the world i couldn't run my own life but i was very concerned about the injustices in the world you know this step really helped me to understand that i needed to kind of keep the focus on myself the step also tells us that we we suffered most from the twisted relationships in our own families and when i did my fourth step that was really true i found out that the people that i had the most resentments towards were the people who they were closest to me the people that I loved. Um, I was single at that time, so most of those people were my mother, my father, my sisters, my brother, you know, people that I went to school with, that I really just had gotten myself into just like some really warped thinking about them. So I needed to, to kind of work that out. So I did it like the book said. Mr. Jones, angry at him, have a resentment, da 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 I just followed it just like the format. I didn't make it a big deal. After I worried about it for years, and I decided, listen, you're just going to do it. And that's how I did it. And I had a, a woman come over one day, my sponsor, and uh, she wasn't even my sponsor. She was just somebody who I really felt close to, and we sat in my kitchen table, and there I just blah, 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 you know, and I just read through it all. And, you know, when I looked at the pattern, she said, you know, this is a lot about fear and anxiety. And, and we went through it, and, um, and then that was over. And then I guess that was what the fifth step was. The fifth step was inviting someone into my life and, and telling them that. The fifth step for me was um, the ego deflation. The fifth step, we admitted to God and to ourselves another, the exact nature of our wrongs. It was the first time in my life where I ever said to somebody, I stole money. I copied the answers on the test. I had, up until that point, I had always just lied about that stuff and I had kept those secrets inside. I eat out of the garbage can, you know. I steal donuts from small children. <laughs> it's true, you know. I, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. And I, I actually just got honest and, and I told those things to people. And step five, they tell you that what you receive from this step is um, it's the beginning of a true nature and a true kinship with God and with others. And I think that that's true because you really start to let somebody else into your life. You're really telling people, this is really who I am. And, and my sponsor was wonderful. You know, I got nothing but love and acceptance back. She didn't say, well, this is really unforgivable. You're a terrible person. Um, I lost my isolation because I, I kind of like joined the human race. You know, I realized that I could tell people these things and I wasn't going to be laughed at and made fun of and, and abused. I also received forgiveness. I felt forgiveness. The uncle that I had stole this money from had since died by the time I got into this program. And I really felt like I've been forgiven. What I opted to do was send that money to a charity. I couldn't give it back to him because he was gone. And so I one day whipped that money anonymously into an envelope and away it went. That was what I chose to do. You know, I made amends with that. I've learned humility to a certain degree. I've gained honesty. Um, and I've learned a lot of realism about myself. I am not a saint. I am not a Pollyanna. I am not perfect. Um, I have a dark side or a shadow side. You know, we all have that. And, and this step really helped me to understand that, that I have those sides. And some days I am going to be obnoxious. And some days I am going to be jealous. And some days I am going to be envious. And 
proud and, and an egomaniac, but I, I also have a, a, a system that's going to help me to be in check with that. So I think that four and five were very important in my life. Um, I needed to do them when I was ready. I needed to kind of like relax. I needed not to stress myself out, not think that I could do this on my own. Telling somebody else was not such a big deal. I think it's also important to choose the person, you know, think about who you want to tell, be it a sponsor or a friend or a clergy person. But, you know, think about who it is you want to share that with because it is an important step. <coughs> Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. This was very necessary for my spiritual growth. Um, and it also was the beginning of a lifetime job. Spiritual growth, you know, we use those words and we don't even really know what they are. Really, what is a spiritual growth? What is a higher power? For me, it, it's, it's the ongoing of a connection with something that is restoring me to sanity. Something that makes me feel good about myself, just to use real words, you know. What a higher power to me is love, this being that I've created in my mind that loves me. Step six helps me to um, talk to God and say, I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready to let you remove my hostility. I'm, I'm getting ready to have my addictions lifted. I'm getting ready to have my jealousy lifted. Some of them I'm holding on to, I'm not ready yet. You know, this hand, I got the, my favorites over here. But I'm getting ready to let go of this. I'm getting ready to, do, to put away some of those other things. Um, you must keep trying. Jealousy is still with me. I, I can be jealous in, the, in a matter of minutes. Something could like, just kind of trigger me. Let somebody get a job and make more money than me. Let somebody be going on another vacation. Let my sister waltz in and tell me something about something. I mean, and I try to smile, and, but it, there's something inside me that still feels inferior or I don't feel good enough. So that's why I act out in, in jealousy or something. But I keep looking at that. You know, why can't I just accept myself? Why isn't the job that I have good enough? Why isn't the money that I make good enough? It's because I just don't love myself enough. I don't really care about the kind of car they drive or that stuff, but it, it's the way I act out because it, it just, it's telling me that there's something inside me, that child within me or whatever it is that's inside me, that hole that hasn't been filled. You know, and that hole is not going to get filled by making more money. You know, that hole is going to get filled by me asking God to remove these things that are, that are, you know, causing me anxiety or disharmony in my life. Delay with these steps can be dangerous because I think you just kind of keep putting it off. And the longer you put off things like this, the more stress they cause because you keep thinking about them. It's one thing if you, you put it off and you don't ever think about it. But we think about our shortcomings. You know, they glare up. You go to a party and you act like a maniac. You think about it on the way home. You know, you act rude at work. You lose your temper on the phone with, a, with, with somebody who is, you know, it's another person or it's a client. And I feel embarrassed about that. And I don't just ignore that. It stays with me. So it's important for me to take action with that. It's important for me not to delay. Um, and rebellion is fatal. You know, the more I rebel, I'll never give this up. I'm never giving this up. You know, I stay stuck. So I need to kind of let that go. Um, then we move on to step seven. Humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. The chief activator of my shortcomings was fear. You know, probably self-centered fear. I'm always afraid that I'm going to lose something that I have. And I'm afraid that I'm not going to get something I want. Most of the time, that's what it is. 
and I need God to remove that fear from me. I have to trust that I'm going to get what I need in this life. I have to trust that what I have in this life is enough. What others have in their life, they're supposed to get. My father used to say to me, Lucille, everybody gets a turn, both good and bad. You're going to get yours just like everybody else. And it's true. I have my share of heartaches and pain, and I've also had my share of successes and joys. And if I don't focus so much on what everybody else is getting and what everybody else is doing, and, and I focus less on how afraid I am that I'm not going to get what I want, I get what I want. It's like when I let it go, when I turn it over. You know, looking for a job is always the, the best example. You know, when you're out, of, you're out of work, you feel bad about yourself, you're not making money, you're, you're around all day long, you hate writing those resumes, you go for interviews, and it's the pits. You know, and half the time I don't even, I just want a job. And so I'm like, I got to get this job, I got to get this job. And then I don't get the job. And I'm really angry. And it it's really was difficult for me to just believe that, well, you know, my friends would say, well, you know, God has a better job. I don't care about a better job, I want a job. <laughs> I want this job. You know, and then six months down the road, you get a job that you really love and you realize that you are in the right place. So I've had to really learn that when, I, when I'm really wanting something or I'm really afraid that I'm not going to get it, that I have to really ask myself, what's going on here? And usually I am afraid that I'm not going to get something that I want. You know, and that I'm not trusting that God is going to give me what I need. Um, and if I let it go, usually I do get what I need. When I live in this state of fear, I'm in a constant state of disturbance and frustration. You know, if you're, if, if, if my, the tapes of my head are constantly spinning and I'm constantly nervous and I'm constantly anxious and I'm constantly in disharmony, then, you know, how can you be serene? How can you be functioning? You're always uptight and all that stuff is spinning around. I have to, you know, this step helps me to like push the eject button and get all that frustration out. The step is also the change in attitude which kind of helps us move towards God. It, it really starts to get me to focus on saying to a power greater than myself, please remove this from me. You know, some days I want to like put it in my little hand and say, okay, and think it's going to disappear. But it doesn't just disappear. When you ask God to remove it, it means I'm going to be willing to work at it. You know, next time I get ready to fly off the handle, I catch myself. I just like start to yell and I don't yell. And I think that that's what happens. You know, like sometimes we read these steps and we think like, well, what do you really do? How, do you, how does God remove that from me? Well, God just doesn't magically remove it. It's not like the obsession. It's not like lifted or... It, it's removed by my willingness to recognize my, my behavior. You know, I don't scream today because I catch myself. Like when I start to... I think, oh, this isn't going to be good for them or me. So I don't, I don't really... And I don't curse. And I don't... And that, was, that, that happened because when I did curse, I, I reminded myself, mm, see, I don't want to do that. So next time I do it less and less and less. And today I don't have to do that. Okay. Step eight. Made a list of all the persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. It's hard to make amends to people. I, um, sometimes it, it happens for me. I, what I did with this step is I took... I remembered my fourth step, and I wrote all those people down. And this eight and nine really go together. You make the list, and then you make the amends, you know, and you, and you think about it. But I just made the list first. I just wrote down my father. Me, I wrote me right up there, because I certainly needed to make amends to myself. And then I wrote down my parents and my brothers and sisters and all those people in my list. And, 
you know, ex-lovers and teachers and people I stole money from and um, kids I beat up when I was fat and, you know, all this stuff. <laughs> people I pushed around because I had power and, you know, I wrote all that down. And some of them were serious, you know, people who were in love with me and I didn't, I just wasn't in love with them. And I, people who I used maybe in some ways. And those people, of course, I never wanted to see again. Nevertheless, did I want to call them up and say, listen, you know, the years that we spent together were really nice, and, but I'm sorry, this was my part in the relationship. I always wanted to go to my grave thinking, you son of a bitch, you know? <laughs> and, and this step has changed that for me. So anyway, I made this big list. I thought it was only gonna be a few people, but once I started writing, I got on a roll. And I realized, like, once you look at yourself and you're not afraid of yourself, like, I wasn't afraid that if I wrote these names down, I, it didn't make me a bad person. It just were things that happened in my life, you know, due to my addiction, due to my disease. You know, I don't feel like I was, I was responsible, but I was out of control. How can you be responsible for your actions if you're out of control? But now I need to take responsibility for my life. And that's what this step says, you know. I take responsibility for what I did in my past life, and then I get willing to make those amends so that that can be gone. So I make that list, um, and I use my good judgment. You know, if somebody's happily married and never want to see me again, I don't need to call their wife or whatever and say, you know, I need to make an amends with you because I had this affair. You know, I need to get into that. I need to use my judgment, and I make amends to people where it's not going to injure them or other people. I think that's really important because, you know, it, it, things get really messy. You know, we live in an air today where commitment is just really far and few between, you know, divorce rates and um, extramarital affairs and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it happens all the time. It's in the magazines, it's in the paper, it's everywhere. So it's really important for me not to, like, get into that stuff just because everybody's doing it doesn't mean I have to do it. Just because I did it when I was active doesn't mean I have the right to do it today. I need to be responsible for myself. And the people that I hurt before I got to this point, I need to make amends to. So I did that. Some people I wrote a letter to because they live in different states and I wasn't able to see them. There was a person in my life who was a, um, an ex-relationship that I never thought I'd see again. And son of a gun, we were both on vacation. And we both ended up at the same meeting in a different town. We were at the Jersey Shore, like 50 miles away from our own homes, and there we were. And I thought, this is the weirdest thing. You know, I knew I needed to make amends to this person. I really didn't want to. And I thought, well, someday I'll write a letter. I really should probably see them in person because it really is close enough. But I really didn't want it because I really felt bad about this relationship because I really was the wacko. You know, I was binging and eating, and it probably, I probably could have been married now in the same relationship, except I was really sick. And my sickness caused a lot of trouble in that relationship. And it was only until I got into the program and I realized that, that a lot of the troubles came from me going out at night binging. I wasn't cheating. I was out eating. You know, that's where I was. I got to go. You know, I was sneaking around, you know, and I wasn't having an affair. I was, I was eating. You know, I was acting out, I'm gaining weight. No, not me, I'm not gaining weight. I was gaining weight. You know, and I was really active in my disease, and that really wrecked this relationship. So here we are at this meeting, and I, and I, I just remember, I just, I just took that as a sign that here we are in this opportunity, I'm never going to see you again, um, and I just said that. And I just simply said, I just want you to know that being in the program and working these steps, I've come to realize my part in the relationship, and I, you know, ask forgiveness for the things that I did, you know, that, that caused disharmony 
and wrong, and I made my amends that way. The other thing we need to remember is that we don't make the amends for the other people. You know, you stole a lot of money from somebody, they don't have to say, well, that's okay, you don't have to pay me back. You're a swell guy, I'm glad you're getting recovered. And, you know, not everybody is real gracious about hearing how sick you were or how sick I was. Not everybody is waiting with open arms thinking you're just a wonderful person now because you're in recovery. You know, we are responsible, and, and I had to take that responsibility. I had to send some money back. I had to apologize to people. Um, I didn't, you know, ruin a lot of people's lives, but I certainly uh, caused enough harm. And, and my, I had to make an amends to myself. I mean, I think if I was abusive to anybody, it was me. I was definitely very abusive. Um, just the way I treated myself, the way I thought about myself, the way I made jokes in public about how heavy I was. Um, so I, I needed to make amends to myself. And I think I did that. I think that the amends starts happening when you just start coming to the program. So that's pretty much step nine. So that's basically the, if for me, four through nine. I just do these steps to the best of my ability. I believe that these are the action steps. You know, you do one, two, three, they're the surrender steps. You surrender your life, you know, and your will every day. Four through nine, you pretty much do. You make amends, you talk to the people, you go on. And then the next steps that I'll talk about tomorrow will be 10, 11, and 12, where we do that on a regular basis. You take a spot check inventory, you make amends right away. I don't keep making amends to these people I hurt long ago, it's over. But certainly I do harm people on today in my life and those people I make amends to. Thank you very much for your time, and uh, I'll see you tomorrow. I have just a couple announcements. Um, Judy, and if you want to raise your hand, Judy. Judy's got sanctuaries for sale. See, Judy? Uh, the tapes will not be available during the retreat, for those people who are not from Dayton, leave, this is Bill up here, our wonderful taper, leave your name and address with Bill. As far as we know right now, the tapes, there will be approximately four tapes and they'll be $3 each. And um, also then you need to pay for mailing costs if you want them mailed to you. And now I'll turn you back over to Lucille. <laughs> And we're back. Oh, well, where do we start? We'll start with this because it's on yellow paper. <laughs> this is the most dangerous question that anybody ever asks me, and so we're going to do it first. In OA, I hear a lot about giving up sugar and white flour. How important is this? Does it have a medical reason with how it affects my mind and thinking? How can I benefit from it? I hear a lot about giving up sugar and white flour. How important is this? Well, <laughs> it's very important, but it depends on you. I'm going to straddle the fence here. I'm not going to go hard and cold. I, um, when I came into OA, nobody ate white flour sugar. Nobody. You didn't think about it. It was poison, okay? X is on the bottle, poison. You didn't even say the word in the meeting. I think there's some truth to it. I think that, I think that that stuff doesn't work too good in my system or in my mind. I don't know if there's a medical reason. Well, let's, let's think of it this way. The ordinary people today, the civilian people, they don't eat sugar because it isn't um, the in thing. 
Nobody eats sugar, really. You know, the, the, the civilian people eat probably two tablespoons of sugar a week because they don't think it's good for them. So I guess, not that I'm a medical profession, but I would guess that there are medical reasons to not eat sugar. I don't think there is any nutritional value in sugar, um, and it probably is poison to the system. If you're somebody who could eat two teaspoons of sugar a week, I guess there's probably nothing wrong with it. But if you are a sugaraholic like I am, probably is very dangerous. Um, and I think sugar makes me crazy. I do. I probably could eat two bags of, uh, uh, two bags of carrots and, you know, feel a little bloated. But if I, if I eat two bags of, you know, sugar cane, I am, I'm nuts. I can't drive. That makes it real clear. If I OD on sugar, I sleep. First I get real manic -y. You know, I'm really, I'm like, woo! And then I'm asleep. That's, that's my memory of how sugar affects me. Um, that's what I remember. You could ask the people I love. My loved ones will tell you that probably I should never eat white flour or sugar. Um, but, but all joking aside, I, I think that you have to make that choice for yourself. You, I know people in the program, they've been in the program 10 years, and they never took sugar or white flour out of their diet. I don't know too many, but I do really know two or three people who have done that. But they never had a problem with sugar, and they don't eat it a lot. So, so again, it's kind of like this. But if, if, if you're my type, type A, sugar-addicted, compulsive overeater, addict-controlled, obsessive-compulsive, it's poison. Um, and I've tried it. I'll be honest. I've, I've, been, and I've tried it. I've tried to put it back in, and it doesn't work for me. So to the best of my ability, I try to not do it. So I hope that answers your question. I'm sure everybody else struggles with the whole idea about it. Oh, and I'll tell you another thing I want to talk about. The artificial junk. You know, the uh, NutraSweet chocolate-covered things, and the sorbitol-filled things, and um, who said it? Somebody here. I can't remember. What did you say? Would you share that with the group? What did... It's methadone. Right. This woman <laughs> thinks it's methadone. <laughs> that, that's wonderful. That's really right. That's exactly what it is. You know, that stuff just jerks me around. I, I've eaten that stuff. I've eaten that dietetic candy. I have such gas for like a month. I am so sick. It isn't worth it. It really is. It just isn't worth it. But you know, we all have our own denials. And we all have our own, you know, feelings with that. And we have to come to our own surrender with this kind of stuff. You know, um, when I got, you know, and I know everybody's drinking soda, so please don't get nervous. But when I, when I got abstinent, I drank three cans of Diet Pepsi a day with caffeine. Three six-packs. That's a lot of soda. I had a curved hand like this because I never went anyplace without a drink. You know, if I, if I wasn't having a meal, I was drinking something. And today I don't do that. You know, because that's sort of the stuff in that really upsets my stomach. I can't drink caffeine after. I try not to drink it at all. But if I drink caffeine like after 8 o'clock at night, I am up until dawn. You know, and that's my body. You know, like my, my system, your system gets cleaned out. So if you've been off sugar for a long time or you've been off caffeine or nicotine, even red meat. I've, I don't eat red, a lot of red meat. I've been off that for a long time. If I eat, like I go to this wedding and we had um, roast beef. I ate, the, I ate this whole roast beef dinner and I, I couldn't sleep. And I think it's because... I don't eat it a lot, and I think that something in that food kind of kept me awake. So I think that there are some medical reasons. I'm not a medical expert, but I know what my body tells me. Garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> I'm drinking soda. Okay, I'm confused on the higher power issue.
Welcome to the club. I believe in God as a supreme being, but I'm shaky on my spirituality. How do you get close? How can you pray to God to help you when, as I understand it, you are supposed to ask for God's will? How do you know what God's will is for you? You're right. The step clearly says, pray for God's will for my life and the power to carry that out. It doesn't say, God, send me a new Cadillac. God, send me a size 12 body. But I, I don't, I don't, I ask for help. And I don't feel bad about that. I mean, I don't say, God, I want this or I want that. I, I kind of say, God, I want to be a good person today. Or, you know, I don't want to be uh, angry and vicious when I go down and visit my family today. Or I don't really want to be mean to my partner. They didn't do what I asked, and I'm really mad. But I don't want to be crazy when they get home. So I ask for help that way. And I think that that help is... Is, is asking for God's will for me, because I think God's will for me is to live in harmony with other people. So when I ask for help, it's kind of like a humility kind of help, not like help me do this or get this, but it's a kind of help me better do your will, help me to better love the people that you've caused me to serve. How do you get closer to God? Um, you work at it. And what I mean by that is what I had to do was create God to be like a real person or a real being. It's like how do you have a relationship with uh, your loved one or how do you have a relationship with your kids or how do you have a relationship with somebody at work? Well, you have coffee with them or you spend time with them. You know, get up 10 minutes before you go to work and read the little book. You know, I, um, I see God within and I see God in the people in the room. And so I, I really believe that. I think that God is within. Um, when I was in the program maybe two or three years, I had a sponsor who used to tell me, I lived alone at the time, that what I should do in the morning was get up, look in the mirror, put my arms around myself like this and say, I love you, I love you, I love you. And when I did that, it was like getting closer to my higher power. You know, and, and this isn't a narcissistic thing. I didn't say, you are gorgeous, you are wonderful. I just said, <laughs> I love you. And I, I, I felt like I was taking steps or action towards getting to a higher power. I feel very close to my higher power. I don't know. I know what that power is, but some days I don't know. Um, but I, I felt close to it. I feel close when somebody wants to hug me in the room. I don't even know the people here, but I, you know, I feel close to the people here. I've shared with a number of people, and the people I haven't shared with, the people I've just seen their faces. I receive that love, and I feel that that's a closeness. I take tremendous pleasure in, in nature, in ducks, in... Um, trees and I take personal responsibility for the earth I try not to litter you know if, if there's worms stuck on the pavement I throw them back in the grass um, if there are moths stuck in the window I open the window and I try to let them out you know and I think that that's the closest to my higher power you know I I think that God created those bugs just like God created me and um, you know I, I should try to treat them fairly they don't hurt me I try not to hurt them I read spiritual books I do. I read, I read a lot of stuff. I, I hate to read, and yet I know it's such a contradiction. I really don't like to read, but I read these things because that's where the information is. And I like to listen to tapes. I love to sing. I love to sing all that um, God music. You know, it doesn't matter if it's uh, black gospel or Christian rock or old spiritual songs. I love that music. I, I put that little station on. I don't listen to all the politics and everything else they're saying. I don't like all that. But I certainly like the rhythm and the spirit of that stuff. So, um, and I do go to church. This is, again, just me. 
I like church, um, so I find that helpful. I don't like the politics, so I found the place. My spiritual journey has been long in coming. Um, I, uh, I branched out and I've stepped aside. I've not abandoned, but I have stepped aside from my traditional faith, and I have found a place to worship, a church that I feel loved and accepted by, a place where I can be free to be who I am. Um, so that helps me to get close to God. And I talk about it, and I hang out with people who talk about it too. Uh, I'm not critical. I'm not judgmental. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. They just don't have to shove it down my throat, and I don't shove mine down theirs. Um, so that's how I do that. And how do I know if I'm doing God's will? Usually if I'm happy and I'm not overeating and binging, I'm doing God's will. If I'm miserable and feel unhappy and uh, out of control, I have a strong feeling that something's not right. What do you feel is the most important thing to prevent relapse? Jokingly, I said to these women, I should lock myself in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> There is some truth to that. What is the most important thing, I think, to prevent relapse? I'm just going to say it again. I think you've got to show up. You have to do your percent of the work. You want to prevent relapse. If you're not in a relapse now and you don't, don't want to be in a relapse, do what you did today. That's what I think. When I think about it now, I think, Jesus, we're going to do this forever, and we're going to do this one day at a time. So what I did today, I got up, I asked God for help, I talked to another OA person. I made good food choices. I'm honest with the people I talk to, and I'll thank God when I go to bed tonight. And I stayed abstinent today. So if I do that tomorrow, chances are I'm going to be abstinent again. If you're in danger of a relapse, like if it's hovering around and you know you're on your way, I would do extra things, like go to more meetings. Say to somebody, I think I'm in trouble. See, we don't say that. I don't say that quick enough. I know when I'm in danger, but I don't, I don't always reach out right away. And I, I think that if we can learn how to ask for help sooner, you, know, you don't have to wait till the fire starts. When you see the smoke, you call for help. And I think that that's what I would, I would think about in relapse. Read books. You know, they have pamphlets. How to avoid relapse. What happens when you're in one? A lot of it is back to the basic stuff. Um, Get on the buddy system. When I lived in New Jersey and I was in my relapse, I spent many a weekends with people. In AA, they have a lot of that 12-step work. You know, people schlep you around, pick you up. OA, I don't think is as progressed as that. But if you need help, I think there are people who are willing to help you. You know, I had people in Jersey who really, um, when I said I, I really am in danger, they helped me. And I have um, had many a people stay at my apartment overnight because they had you know, were in danger of eating, or they were eating, and they knew if they were left on their own, they were going to eat. People said to me, I'm leaving this meeting and eating. You know, I said, well, if you stay at my house, there's nothing to eat, so you can come with me if you like. You know, and then they do that, and you know, once it passes, it's kind of like, I think like relapse and that obsession, it's kind of like a, a whirlwind hurricane. You know, if you could board up all the, bro the windows and the glass and it whips through, you don't get busted up. But if you don't, you get hurt. So like, if you feel it coming, you got to protect yourself. You know, you have to not go where it's dangerous. Never go to a buffet. If you're in the devil of a, of a relapse, don't ever go to a buffet. Mm -hmm. You know, I, when I feel that shaky about things, I eat before I go. You know, if it's a bad night for me and I know we're going to a dinner, you know, some kind of party, I, I do other things. I eat at home. Or I go after the dinner. I say, what time are we eating? Five? Okay, I'll be there at seven. Don't hold dinner for us. So like that. So you kind of try to um, think of some good ideas. 
Could you address the struggle of bringing up young children and meeting their needs for food, social activities, family functions, etc., while still working a tight program? I'm having a hard time with my own abstinence while I try to feed and care for and nurture my family. Oldest child is seven, youngest is four. Um, family functions and the food that often goes with them is a real problem for me right now, yet I don't want to deprive my kids' help. I don't have children, so I don't really have my own experience to share with you. Um, but I understand it is a struggle. I mean, if you have to cook meals for yourself and you have to cook meals for other people and, you know, you, know, you don't want to deprive the kids, so if you have the stuff in the house for them, you have maybe the possibility of getting into it yourself. I don't, I don't know what to do. Um, I know it's possible. I know that there are other people here who have children who stay abstinent and give their kids some stuff. Somebody was talking to me today when the grandchildren come, they, you know, they want to feed them and overfeed them, all that stuff. And, you know, you can find other ways. You know, you, can, you don't have, those kids don't have to have everything. Or they can have things in small quantities. Or people I know buy things and freeze them. They put them in the freezer and they only, they get them rationed out. Or if you have a spouse, let your spouse treat them. You know, I, I have another friend who's every Sunday the husband takes the kids and they have junk out. You know, they go out for whatever it is they go out for, and she goes to a meeting or wherever she does, but he takes them and um, cares for them. I, I'm sure I'm not answering your question enough because I know you've got to drive kids to hockey and softball and they want everything they see and when they want it, you want it. But I think that, you know, we have, we have these families. You know, we can't live here at the retreat house. We have to go back home and we have to deal with other people's food and we have to, you know, we have to live in the life that's, that's there for us. And uh, so, again, there's not a whole lot different. You go to meetings. If you can't go to a lot of meetings, try to go to one, try to read. Probably you don't have a lot of time with four, seven, you know, seven and a four-year-old, but you, you can make time in the morning. Just try to make a little time. And I think a lot of this, too, is you got to be your own cheerleader. That's what I feel like. You know, you got to really just kind of keep... Draw in that strength from within and from without. Bring it home with you and just kind of keep giving yourself that old pep talk. Like, you know, I am worth it. I am beautiful. I am loved. God created me. This stuff is poison. I don't need to do this. Um, talk to some people who have children, and maybe they give you some pointers as well. Um... I think we addressed this question, the lady said that, but I think we'll read it. It says, once you realized it wasn't a matter of can't work the program but wouldn't work the program, how did your recovery begin? Didn't going on the gray sheet bring you struggles? Um, how did you deal with those struggles? I'm assuming you didn't magically get abstinent the next day and never had problems. You're right, I didn't get magically abstinent and I had a lot of problems. And you're right, I did address that. And, and hopefully that the format that we laid out earlier this, this evening will be helpful, um, you know, finding the food plan that works for you, staying on it, and making a commitment, I think, is really important here. I think that the key for me is being committed to something, whatever that is for you. Um, find it. The other thing is don't set yourself up to fail. Don't everybody go home and get on this tiny little stringent diet and then the next day, you know, eat your brains out because you, you couldn't do it. Don't set yourself up to fail. You know, find something that's comfortable, find something that works, and stick to it.
okay, it's that time again. (laughs) Where we all look at each other and think, who's going to do this? But we'd like to have some positive pitches. So whoever would like to come forward and talk and express, or if you have more questions of Lucille. (laughs) Oh, Hi, I'm Sue. I'm a compulsive overeater. I love it when they say positive pitches. I never have anything positive to say. How's that for negative? Um, A year ago, I came to retreat here, same room, riding on a crest of abstinence, and it was a different retreat. I came here Friday night on a binge and um, felt entirely different when I walked in these rooms. But I knew one thing or two were going to happen. One thing was I knew when I called a friend and said, um, how are you getting there and can I have a ride, that I would not be under my own steam getting here or leaving. So it was kind of like a captive audience. I was going to be here for the duration. And from experience, I knew that um, I would eat abstinently while I was here, which has happened um, thanks to this retreat. They do, they do wonderful things with the food. Um, something else has happened. Thank you, Lucille. Um, when you started talking food tonight is what I needed to hear tonight and have needed to hear for a long time. And so I listened and got excited when I was sitting back there and I got excited about my program again and um, some ideas and some things I wrote down and some amends I had to make and some issues I need to deal with. And um, I guess that's why I went to my feet and motioned to Bev and said, here, pick me. (laughs) You know, I know all the rest of you really are anxious to get up here and talk, so so I I wanted to be first, so let let me get up here. Anyway, I feel real good right now, a little nervous, but... um, I like what I hear, and and for a long time, for the first time in a long time, I'm excited about about doing program again. And it need I, you need these retreats for for those of you that you know. Last year I was the virgin; it was my first time. This year, <laughs> like that. <laughs> this year I'm not, and I and I kind of knew a little bit what to expect. And uh, boy, it's met my expectations. It's wonderful. I, I've got to cry a lot. I cried a lot last night um, in my room. I, um, I isolated. I hit that, hit that bedroom, hit that room, grabbed that big book, and started a meditation and um, choked my way through it with Kleenex and a pillow and my teddy bear. And it didn't feel much better today. I've had a lot, a lot of tears this weekend. And it's a funny thing about you people. You see somebody in tears, and you don't walk up and say, Why are you crying? Let's straighten it up. It's like, oh, you feel bad, and oh, can I give you a hug? You look like you need one. And where else but these rooms can you get that kind of love and that kind of acceptance? Like, you need a hug. Would you like one? (laughs) Bet me. Come on. (laughs) But um, thank you. Thank you for being there. Thank you for this message that came from you and for my sponsors and my friends and the people who love me. And... uh, I was glad I could be here to accept this award. Thank you. (laughs)
I'm Ann and a compulsive overeater. Hi. Thank you. Lucy, I want to thank you so much. You are just a hoot. <laughs> you, um, you touched on some things. For me, that your little to-do about pizza was just, I think we know each other. I'm sure we do. <laughs> um, what I appreciate, though, from you is your honesty. And I know I've, I have not been in program forever. I've been a little over a year and a half. And I am at a place where I am very close to my, to my goal weight. And, and I'm really, I'm frightened of that. So what I know um, from the experience of some people in this room and some people that aren't here, they've gone through a lot of struggles. And I understand there was a period of time where relapse wasn't even talked about. So what I have is a great appreciation, I think. I'm, I'm afraid of it because it seems to happen. It really does. I, I don't know if it's, it's gloom and doom to say it's probably going to happen. I don't, but it doesn't have to, I don't think. I don't think it has to happen. I think that, um, that people before had some ideas about how the program should be and have found through hit or miss that it doesn't need to be that way necessarily. So I... I really appreciate your talking about food, too. I think there was a time where nobody would have talked about food. And I think it's real important because it is part of my life and everyone's life here. What concerns me about myself is my maintenance. And I've, I um, clown around and kid and joke, but it isn't a joke. It really is not a joke. The other thing. Because I've done my food, I've chosen to not do my step work a whole lot. And um, what I have now is I don't have all the food. I have some. I have some problem with my food. Generally, I'm okay with it. I think, but I have to replace that with something. And we, some of us, talked about that a little bit today. I. I can't just leave that void. I have to replace it with something. So I feel that I'm fortunate that I, um, I do, for the most part, feel a connection with my higher power, whom I choose to call God. And I'm doing a lot of things differently. I'm more willing to do things that I'd never considered doing before. Um, I'm about to start a new job, which I'm real excited about, that I really didn't... Um, I was approached about the job. I didn't really go after it. But that's okay because this might be my God's way of saying, all right, here's the first step, and here you can go on, and you can. There are things that, that you can do if you allow yourself to do them. The other thing is uh, my little revelation for the weekend, and then I'm going to be finished. We, um, we meaning those in the group that discuss faith, today, I found myself looking forward to the retreat, wanting to come, wanting to be here, and in a bad place when I got here. So I thought it would be a time for me to do some step work and to ha really connect with my higher power, except that didn't happen, and I was really forcing the issue. And I was pretty distraught by the time we went to the workshops. A couple people said things in the workshops 
like one person said, that I have a right to expect that God will take care of me while I'm on this journey that you call it. I, I like that terminology. And there was this light came on. It was wonderful. It was just wonderful. Um, also, that person happens to be my, my step sponsor who was in that room with me, which I think is, is interesting. I think that things don't just happen, that God puts us where we need to be and with people that are real special and dear to us. So I just want to thank you.